you, friends. I want to invite you to take your copies of God's Word and turn in them to Psalm 22. Book one of the Psalms is all about conflict. And here we come to the decisive battle. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, delivering the death blow to sin and death. Satan and hell, saving us from the just wrath of God. And how did Jesus win? Well, by dying. His victory looked like defeat. He was exalted in His resurrection, but first, God moves in a mysterious way. He had to face humiliation. The Gospels tell us what happened on the cross. They give the details. Psalm 22 gives us Jesus' perspective. What did Jesus feel on the cross? What was He thinking? Amazingly, what was Jesus praying? What was He saying to His heavenly Father? Well, as we read, notice the back and forth in Psalm 22 of the cries for help and the confidence that Jesus has in God our Father, because these that we read tonight, brothers and sisters, are the very words that Jesus was thinking, feeling, praying on the cross. Uh, as we give our attention to this word, let me pray for us. Oh Lord, our souls would cling to the dust, but would you give us life according to your word? Help us as we give our attention to it, to be nourished, strengthened by it, Help us to see and to love all the more our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in His name that we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read Psalm 22. We're not going to read the whole psalm this evening. We'll read to verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. 
for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One commentator said that as we come to this psalm, we take off our shoes because this is holy ground. And yes, all Scripture is God's very Word, but there is something truly unique about Psalm 22 being Jesus' very prayer on the cross. And how do we know this for sure? How can we say this? Well, Jesus told us so. The Gospels record seven statements that Jesus made from the cross. One of them was Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It was a question, and it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus might as well have said, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Jesus was indicating that this psalm explained his experience. And quickly, let me say that David is the author of this psalm, but he is not speaking for himself in this psalm. What Peter said in Acts chapter 2 stands, he said, David, being a prophet, spoke of Christ. There, Peter was speaking about David and his reference to Psalm 16. But again, these were about events dealing with the crucifixion and resurrection. Psalm 22 does not match David's experience. Uh, Even in his day, I would imagine that there was some mystery surrounding the psalm. Until that day, when the sky went dark in midday, and David's son called for this song from the cross. This is the psalm of the cross. And when we read it or we sing it, we are coming up close to the cross and seeing its horror. It's somber to read. It ought to drive us to hate our sin and to love our Savior. So terrible is our sin that Christ had to suffer to pay for it. But so great is our Savior that He endured the most desperate suffering to save us. Now this psalm isn't all suffering. It's also about salvation. And we'll look next week at verses 22 through 31. You can break this psalm up into the humiliation of Jesus in verses uh, 1 through 21, but then you may have noticed at the very end of verse 21, there's a change, and uh, and the Lord Jesus uh, speaks of being delivered by God, and then the whole tone of the psalm changes from there in verses 22 through 31, and we read of Jesus' exaltation, the celebration that we ought to have because Christ is risen. But tonight, we turn to Jesus' humiliation. And I want you, as you look at your uh, outline that's printed there, I'm not going to give equal treatment to these six points. Uh, We're going to spend longer, especially on the first section. But I want you to see 
the, the back and forth that's present in this psalm. We, we learn from the progress of this, of this psalm that there's a cry for help, and then it's followed immediately by a statement of confidence from the Lord Jesus, and then back to a cry, and then back to a statement of confidence, and then back to a cry, and then once more, a statement of confidence. We, we learn even from this model, from this progression, that as Christians, brothers and sisters, we don't stare at our suffering. That will lead us to despair. And, and, and our suffering individually may well be awful, but we look at it and then we look at the Lord. And we trust Him and we pray to Him and ask for help. And so brothers and sisters, would you look with me at Psalm 22, beginning in verses 1 and 2, and we, we see the first cry, I am forsaken. And here we read the most famous line of this psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it begs the question, what was happening to Jesus on the cross? Well, Acts 2 says it this way, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, completely deserted by his 11 disciples, except later by John at the cross. He was taken through a series of unjust trials. He was beaten. Roman guards would punch him and then mock him by saying, prophesy who hit you. He was scourged with a whip that was embedded with bits of bone and metal so that it would tear at his flesh. They twisted thorns together and pressed them down on his head, making a crown for him. And then soldiers mockingly bowed before him, mockingly saluting him and spitting on him. They beat his head with a reed. They forced him to carry his own cross, which he was physically unable to do. He needed the help of a passerby. When they made it to Golgotha, the place of the skull, they stripped him of his clothing for which the Roman soldiers would cast lots. They nailed him to a cross where he was then lifted up and was left there suspended, his body weight bearing down on the nails while soldiers and even his fellow prisoners continued to mock him. And he hung in that position for hours. The cross was utterly agonizing. And throughout that time, there's even more going on. He was likely enduring Satan's temptation to give up, to call down that 12 legions of angels to deliver him, to prove those wrongs, to prove those wrong who said he saved others, but he cannot save himself. But none of that was the worst part of the crucifixion. The most awful aspect of the crucifixion was the thing unseen. The reason that Jesus was crucified was to receive God's wrath against sin in Himself. This is what our psalm is expressing. Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While He was taking the place of sinners. Jesus was serving as our substitute, taking our sin for all of those who believe in Him on Himself so that we might be credited with His righteousness 
but the Lord would treat him as the one who had sinned. Now in this moment when Jesus is forsaken, God is still triune. The Son is not cut off from the Father or the Spirit. He doesn't cease to be God. But mysteriously, Jesus is taking on the wrath of the Father against sin in such a way that he has a sense of God utterly abandoning him. In verse 1, he experiences a loneliness that comes from a seemingly unanswered prayer, which continues into verse 2. And then he cries out because his pain has no relief. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. The Westminster Confession says it this way, that Jesus endured the most painful sufferings in his body, but also most grievous torments immediately in his soul. Isaiah 53 said that the Lord was laying on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He was bearing the sins of many. Jesus was the Passover lamb being offered up. Christ was redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on the tree. Jesus was bearing our sins in his body on the tree. What Jesus was experiencing on the cross was the very essence of hell. The wrath of God, which includes physical torment, certainly, but also the eternal anguish of soul was being poured out on Jesus. Why? Jesus was forsaken so that you might be accepted. Jesus said on the cross, It is finished. Jesus finished the cup of wrath, the eternal wrath of God that you must pay. Jesus finished it on the cross. He is able to do this because He is fully man, and so He could die. And He is fully God, and so He can endure the eternal wrath of punishment for sin in Himself. The wrath of God against the elect was extinguished on Christ. If you are in Christ, this is for you. If you are not a Christian, then this is not applied to you until you come to Him. But if you are His this evening, He is the propitiation for your sin, meaning He has absorbed all of God's wrath against your sin in Himself. As Isaiah 53.11 says, out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's us. As He shall bear their iniquities. Brothers and sisters, is He your hope? Do you look on the cross and see His love displayed? Has the cross become glorious for you? It is not enough to look at the cross and feel bad. It's not enough to look at the cross and feel this sort of vague admiration that Jesus did a brave thing, that Jesus did a selfless thing. That's not enough. Is He your God? Have you run to the Lamb who was slain 
and embraced Him? Are those nail-pierced hands holding you? Brother, sister, if they are, then live in that embrace. Love Him. And if you are not in the embrace of the Lord Jesus Christ, do not delay. Run to Him. Find life and joy and peace in the Lamb who was slain. Well, throughout this psalm, we get a glimpse of Jesus' thoughts, His prayer on the cross, and we see that Jesus was not hopeless and that He did not despair there on the cross and He did not sinfully doubt. We see tragedy and trust both in, in that first line. Jesus calls the Father my God. Not my father, even though that's the way he taught his disciples to pray, and this is the way that he normally speaks of the father. He calls him my God. But we also see Jesus' trust in that he still calls him my God. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the day of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Even though Jesus experienced the most violent suffering, both body and soul, Jesus would throw himself just as hard onto the promises of God. And in doing this, we remember that we must do the same. The more desperate is your need, the more desperately you need to throw yourself on the mercy of God. We praise him for his character and his faithfulness, and that's what we see in the next verses. Look at this statement of confidence that Jesus says, you rescue your people in verses 3 through 5. The Lord Jesus praises His Father for His holiness, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. The Lord will not let injustice go on forever, and Jesus knows it. He trusts it. Even while He feels unanswered on the cross, He knows what's true about His Father. He knows that, as Psalm 16 said, He will not let His Holy One see corruption, even though at the moment on the cross it looks like He will. He knows that the Father is not too weak to save His Son. He's the King, after all, sitting on His throne. He is the object of praise for all His people. And there is no one better. There's no one higher for us to appeal to. He is the object of trust. You see it three times there in verse, you see that word trust three times in verses four and five. Father, he's saying you delivered. And so rescue your, you have rescued your people throughout history and therefore you will not put your son to shame. What do we see Jesus doing here? We see his confidence. And, and we too ought to pray this way when we are in distress. We ought to use God's attributes and God's acts in our prayers, especially when we're in deep need. If you are in Christ, the Lord will always deliver you. He will either deliver you from death so that you might praise Him in life, or He will deliver you through death straight into His glorious presence. We can have confidence in the Lord. I think we also see in this passage the need to be specific in our prayers. Pray God's attributes. Pray who He is, that God is holy, unchanging, that He's merciful, that He's slow to anger, that He's abounding in steadfast love. Pray His attributes. 
Pray also His promises that He will not leave us or forsake us, that He will work out everything to the good of those who are called according to His purpose, that surely again He is coming soon. Pray His attributes, pray His promises, and pray His acts. The Lord delivered Noah safely in the ark. He delivered Joseph out of prison. He delivered Israel out of Egypt and out of the water. He delivered Joshua through Jericho's walls. He delivered David from Saul. He delivered Jonah out of the fish's mouth. He delivered Daniel's friends out of the fire, and he delivered Daniel out of the lion's den. He delivered Jesus out of the grave, and he delivered you out of hell. Trust him. Pray his attributes, his promises, and his acts. Don't settle for vagueness. Pray to the real God, the real stuff that He's done, and expect Him to do real stuff for you. Even if that means He lets you die, He will take you to the real heaven, to a real feast, where you will really see Jesus face to face. We also see in this Jesus' continued prayer. Notice that the experience of forsakenness for Jesus didn't mean that he stopped praying. He said, why have you forsaken me? And then goes on praying. This isn't like someone turned to a friend and said, I feel like God has forsaken me. No, he brings that to the Lord himself. This isn't like one of those people who is deconstructing their faith. You've heard of these kinds of people, that they think they're so cool, They've got a podcast. They've got advertisers. And they think they're too good for Christianity now. Or they're so smart that they've figured out how to make Christianity better because they're more compassionate than Jesus or something. Paul's words about them are to avoid these kinds of people. They mock the Lord Jesus with fake humility that is really cross-hating pride. We don't go around and complain and fuss that I feel like I don't understand, that God doesn't understand me, that He's not listening to me. We don't fuss about those things. We go to the Lord and ask Him for help. And we turn to others and ask them genuinely, I am seeking the Lord and I want Him to draw near to me. Christian, if you don't feel close to God, that's not something to ignore. That's not nothing. Don't wait to pray until you feel close to God. Jesus didn't feel close to the Father, and He prayed. If that's you right now, feeling distant from the Lord, maybe the reason you feel so distant is because you've grown cold in prayer. What does James tell us to do? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Ask your brothers and sisters to pray for you as well. Well, not only is the Lord suffering in body and soul. He's also mocked by man. And and after his confession of confidence, he returns to this cry in verses 6 through 8, I'm mocked. In verse 6, he says, but I am a worm and not a man. Jesus' suffering is so great that he feels less than human. And not only is he experiencing unparalleled spiritual and physical suffering, There's only one of the 12 
there at the crucifixion, John, uh, who Jesus is going to tell to look after his mother, who's also present. But, but So few of his disciples are even present with him. But more than that, those who are there mercilessly mock him. And in verses 7 and 8, we get a sample of the actual words that Jesus' mockers used. And we need to recognize how amazing this is. David is writing this psalm 1,000 years before Jesus' crucifixion. And these are the very actions, the very gestures that the people who are there make, and it's the very words that the people who crucified Jesus said. And look especially at verse 8 where they mock and say, He trusts in the Lord, let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. Do you see how wrong the scoffer's words are there? It it presumes on God. He trusts in the Lord, let Him deliver Him. This could represent, it could summarize a variety of false views of God. Maybe they think on the one hand that God will always answer a believer's prayers when He acts, when, when He asks uh, and and the and that God will an, will answer exactly how we ask Him, as if God's a vending machine or a butler or something like that. Or it could be that they think if God was really with this man, then He wouldn't be suffering, as if God prevents us from suffering. Uh, health, wealth, and prosperity preachers teach this. Some charismatics believe this that God will not let you suffer if you truly believe in Him. But not only is Jesus the very height of faithfulness to God, perfect and without sin, it is the stated will of the Lord to crush Him. Isaiah 53. Jesus is exactly where He is supposed to be in God's will for the salvation of His people. And these scoffers are mocking the Son of God who's doing the very will of God. Lord, have mercy. We're reminded here, brothers and sisters, avoid scoffers. They're everywhere. And there's a temptation to it even in our own hearts. Psalm 1 tells us, avoid scoffers. Mockery is like a poison gas. You don't realize it always when you first hear it, when you see people sneering, you see people laughing, joking about the holy things of God. And mockers can make themselves sound innocent enough at first. We're just laughing. We're just having a good time. You're taking things too seriously. Why don't you loosen up a little bit? What's wrong with a little irreverence after all? I hope that this psalm makes the answer to that painfully obvious. And just in case it doesn't, Hebrews 12 tells us, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's good to laugh. It's good to joke. But we don't make fun of God. We don't take His name in vain. There are some things that we hold most dear and most reverent, and it is the Lord in His way. And we avoid scoffers and mockers. Well, Jesus is mocked. He cries out to the Lord for help, and then he returns to a statement of confidence in the Lord. We see this very quickly in verses 9 through 11. In verse 9, he says, You are he who took me from the womb. Speaking of the Lord. See the special relevance of this for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Lord Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived before His miracle conception as the eternal second person of the Trinity. The baby in Mary's womb was fully God and fully man. And He always perfectly trusted in His Father and relied on the Holy Spirit. Even as His body was nourished by His mother, like the psalm says, He was kept and sustained by His heavenly Father. As we all are. We owe a great deal to our parents and to others who have cared for us and taught us and shepherded us and mentored us and we ought to thank them and honor them. And ultimately, all that praise goes to the God who provided for us through them. In verse 11, there's a supplication, a request for God to draw near because trouble is near and there is no other real hope except God Himself. And that comes to verses 12 through 18, which, are, which is the longest cry that Jesus makes in this psalm. And it painfully describes what Jesus is going through on the cross. It is this long sustained lament in this passage. Jesus' cry, I am crucified, in verses 12 through 18. Again, we should remember, David is prophesying the details of Jesus' crucifixion a thousand years before it happened. Uh, Sometimes he's talking about it poetically. Sometimes he's talking about it exactly. But David is describing something that wouldn't even be invented at the earliest for 500 years, crucifixion. But in verses 12 through 13, uh, Jesus speaks of animals. And and, and several animals are described in this psalm, or at least mentioned bulls, lions, oxen, and later dogs. Not domestic dogs here. These are scavengers. These are all uh, dangerous animals responsible for death. Well, in their sin, Jesus' crucifiers have become like beasts. This is something the psalmist Asaph says about himself, that in his sin he was like a brute beast toward the Lord. And it's something that King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel found out about firsthand. Sin makes us beast-like so degrading the image of God in us that we become animal-like. And that's what we're seeing in this psalm, those around Jesus at His crucifixion. Verses 14 through 15, look there. It's a terrible description of physical suffering, some of which here is poetic. Some is uh, literal there, his, that, that He's poured out like water. His bones are out of joint. His heart is like wax. In, in some ways, there's, there's a long list of different ways that you could die while being crucified. It's a horrific method of torture. Uh, it's, it's a description here in, in verse 14 and 15 as if everything is going wrong in your body. In many ways, that's what's happening on the cross. But then verses 16 through 18, this is the most pointed section. This is the sharpest description of the cross. Look there with me. You you see that he says, dogs encompass me. Common name for Gentiles in Jesus' day. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. Jesus' bones were not broken during crucifixion. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots, which the Gospels testify they did, in fact, do. What's a, what's a way, before we move on to the final section in this psalm, that we might apply this section to us? Well, we should notice here, I think, that the Lord Jesus narrates His suffering to His Father. And we should do the same. 
Now, we can pray simple help prayers, or like Peter did when he was sinking down into the water, save me. It's good to pray short prayers. But it should be a profound comfort to us that we can tell our whole story to the Lord. We can tell the Lord exactly what's going on with us down to the details. And the Lord hears. The Lord cares. The Lord already knows. And the Lord wants you to come to Him that He might comfort you. Psalm 62 verse 8 says, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Brothers and sisters, go to the Lord in prayer. Offer up your desires unto God. Pour out your heart to Him. Well, finally, we come to Jesus' last statement of confidence. You have rescued me. And this is really where we come to the turning point of the psalm. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus' supplication reaches its apex. A desperation in those verses. And then all of a sudden, in verse 21, mid-verse, there's a change. And we read these words, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Maybe not exactly the description you were expecting, but what you see there is rescue. Deliverance from death. Jesus died and His body hung lifeless on the cross. His Spirit went to be with the Lord in heaven where He was today in paradise with the thief on the cross, just like He told Him. His body was taken down by Joseph of Arimathea. What an awful moment that must have been for Joseph. And then He was placed in His own tomb. Jesus really died. And then He really rose. Acts 2.24 so powerfully says, God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Death can't hold Jesus. Or as Jesus announces to the Apostle John in Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Well, next week we'll look at the rejoicing that follows here. But here we remember that the resurrection came after the crucifixion and the burial of our Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let me conclude by calling you to rejoice in Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism, a wonderful catechism of our faith, written in 1563. In its question number 60, it asks this question, How are you righteous before God? How are you made righteous? And this is the answer. Listen carefully. I am made righteous only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, having never kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, but nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits me 
the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if, listen to this, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. And as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Christ on the cross took your sin on Himself. And He has credited you with His righteousness. And that is how you are saved. That is how you stand in fellowship with a holy God. Well, have you? Is Christ yours? Have you accepted this gift with a believing heart? Then, oh, Christian, love your Savior. See how He loved you and how He loves you still. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank You for the grace poured out for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, let us never grow tired of praising Him for all He has done for us in the Gospel. Lord Jesus, we love You. We thank You. It is in Your name that we pray. Amen.